Today's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 48. An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. Then he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me, for it is the one who is least among you all who is the greatest. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, two weeks ago, uh, after church was over, as uh, my wife Hannah and I were winding down the evening, we were watching game seven of the Cleveland Cavaliers Boston Celtics series. And in the middle of the fourth quarter at 1030 at night, her contractions got stronger and more frequent, uh, which posed a dilemma to me because the game was so good and I wanted to finish the game. Uh, but fortunately, Hayden knew that uh, her daddy and mommy wanted to watch the game, and so she stayed put for a little bit longer. After the game was over at 11 o'clock, we called an Uber, because that's what you do when you're in labor in the city. And we uh, took an Uber to the hospital. To make a very long story short, after the epidural and whatnot, at uh, 10.09 a.m. on Monday morning, uh, we welcomed Hayden Shiloh Chung uh, into the world at a whopping nine pounds, 10 ounces. Uh, our nurse said that we didn't give birth to a baby, but to a toddler. <laughs> she was so big. Um, one other interesting thing is that uh, Hayden was born on Memorial Day, obviously, but our first Logan was actually born on leap year. So apparently we only give birth to holiday babies. And uh, Hayden was born on the 28th. Logan was born on the 29th. Hannah was born on the 30th. And I was born on the 1st. So we're also a very orderly family, uh, apparently. We just, need, we just need the 31st to, to get the perfect straight. And so uh, we'll see what happens with that. Uh, I, uh, but I do, I do want to take this opportunity to say a sincere thank you uh, from the bottom of my heart for the texts, the emails, and the meals in particular. Uh, it has meant the world to us. Uh, and I really, really mean that. And uh, as the saying go, goes, it takes a village. And so... Uh, I just want to take this opportunity to say thank you to all of you for the support that we, um, we've desperately needed the past two months. The other reason why I'm, I'm talking about children is actually because our passage today is talking about children. And this passage actually says, when you welcome little children into your life, it is the equivalent of welcoming Jesus into your life. Now, how does Jesus uh, make that correlation and why should I even care? Well, in the documentary Dropbox, which is about a pastor in Seoul, South Korea, this pastor takes in abandoned babies. And for whatever reason, in this pastor's neighborhood, there is a lot of infanticide. And so this has happened on more than one occasion where the pastor would find babies literally abandoned by a dumpster. And so this became such a problem that the pastor uh, made something called a Dropbox. And it's, it was a box where mothers and fathers could literally just drop off their babies, no questions asked. And typically, these babies had Down syndrome or other diseases and things that our society would deem abnormal. And one of the things that this pastor says in the documentary is this, we need these babies. Society needs these babies because these babies are our greatest teachers. They teach us unconditional love. 
they teach us patience, they teach us empathy, they teach us sacrifice, they teach us what it really means to, to love. And so this pastor says that these kids in particular are our greatest pedagogical teachers. And I would say that children in general, if there is one thing that they really, really teach us, is humility. And children's humility is most evident in their willingness to depend upon other people for help. So our daughter, uh, second daughter Hayden and Logan for that matter, uh, without, our, without them depending upon us, they couldn't survive longer than 48 hours without our help. And so what this passage is saying is this, just as children depend upon parents to live, similarly, we need to depend that much on God in order to live as well. Jesus talks about children again in the Gospel of Matthew, and he says, the kingdom of God or heaven belongs to such as these. And oftentimes people interpret that as this, if you want to go to heaven, you have to be innocent like a child. Now, if you have nephews or nieces or your own kids, you know that children are but anything innocent. My daughter's favorite word right now is mine. Children are anything but innocent. And so what does Jesus mean when he says that the kingdom of God is for such as these? He is not talking about how innocent children are, but he's talking about how dependent children are. And that is who the kingdom of God is reserved for, people that are dependent on God, not independent on God. Now, this is important because we live in a society where we prize and idolize self-sufficiency, power, control, autonomy, and independence. A lot of us don't like asking people for help. We don't mind helping other people, but we don't like asking for help ourselves because at that point we feel weak, and we don't like the feeling of being weak. But what Jesus is saying is that by being weak, by being like a child, this is actually what it means to be great. The least is the great. And so here Jesus' teachings are upside down. The weakest are the strongest. The least are the great. Now, I want to be clear. This passage isn't saying that we should not be great. If anything, it's teaching us that we should be great. But oftentimes, our desires to be great are tainted and with bad motivations, and we do it the wrong way. And so if you take a look with me at verse 46... In verse, verse 46, it says, An argument started among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now, Jesus had different circles of friends. He had a circle, the largest circle were, consisted of multitudes of people that followed him, hundreds if not thousands of people. And then he had another circle that consisted of 72, another circle that consisted of the famous 12 disciples, and then a smaller inner circle that consisted of three people, Peter, James, and John. And similarly, we have different circles of friends. You have Facebook, Instagram friends. Some of you have literally over 10,000 <laughs> friends on Facebook and Instagram. And then we have a smaller circle of friends that we hang out with. And then we have an even smaller circle of friends that we really consider like family. And so this is not something that is foreign to us. But within the three, or within the 12, I should say, a dispute arose as to which of them was the greatest. 
Now, we play the greatest game all the time. Who's the greatest basketball player that's ever lived, LeBron James or Michael Jordan? Who's the greatest performer that's ever lived, Beyonce or Michael Jackson? Play the greatest game all the time. But here, the disciples are arguing as to which of them are the greatest. This was the ultimate uh, conversation and argument of pride and cockiness rather than uh, one of humility. Now, we have to place ourselves in their shoes for a moment. In the first century Jewish world, they believed that the next Messiah was going to be some kind of political hero or liberator. And so they thought that because Jesus would have this sort of power where he would be the next Caesar or king or president, they thought that they would be next in line. And so they wanted to be either the prime minister or the vice president. And so there was this desire to, to sort of to, to tag along with Jesus to accumulate uh, this type of power. And so we know this because on one other occasion, James and John, who are part of the inner three, their mother went up to Jesus, who many presume was actually Jesus' aunt. And James and John's mother asked Jesus, when your kingdom comes, when you're crowned king, grant that one of my sons sits at your left and one of my sons sits at your right. This was, this was nepotistic, helicopter, tiger parenting to the ultimate degree. Grant that one of my sons sits at your left and one of my sons sits at your right. And so there's this desire to accumulate power. And this is what it means to be, quote unquote, great. But as we take a look at this passage, again, this passage isn't saying that there's anything wrong with being great, but oftentimes our desires to be great are tainted. There's nothing wrong with being aspirational, ambitious. We should live lives that are meaningful and impactful. Being great is far better than being mediocre, but oftentimes the way that we do it is tainted. Uh, One of the podcasts that I listen to uh, um, quite often is a leadership podcast by Craig Groeschel. And it's a podcast I highly recommend to any of you who are in any kind of leadership position at all, whether you're in ministry or not. Uh, Groeschel is a uh, pastor in Oklahoma. They have over 25 campuses. And his church, Life Church, was actually the one that started the Bible app, which is on many of our phones. This app has been downloaded over 200 million times. And so Craig Groeschel is a very influential pastor, but he's also a very overworked person. And it got to a point where he's so overworked that he went to go see a counselor. And the counselor asked him two questions that pierced his heart immediately. And the two questions were this. Number one, who are you trying to impress? And number two, what are you trying to prove? Who are you trying to impress? And number two, what are you trying to prove? Now, let me flip the table around and ask you those same two questions. Based upon the way that you're living your life right now, who are you trying to impress? And number two, what are you trying to prove? Uh, In the movie The Greatest Showman, uh, a soundtrack that has been filling up my home for the past few weeks, this movie movie is loosely based on the life of P.T. Barnum. And P.T. grew up the son of a very poor tailor who worked for a very wealthy family. And this wealthy family happened to have a daughter. And P.T., even as a child, fell in love with the wealthy man's daughter. And eventually, when they grew up, they actually got married together. 
And uh, P.T., uh, just like his father, was a blue-collar worker who worked for some kind of shipping company. But eventually, he got laid off, which was really devastating because he had two girls. And so he, te he tells his wife, Charity, this is not the life I promised you. I promised you a life of magic and wonder. And Charity says, but I have everything that I have ever wanted. And he says, no, this is not the life I've ever promised you. And so you see P.T., you see the drive that P.T. has. And because of this drive, he actually becomes a great entrepreneur. And he starts a circus unlike any circus that has ever been seen before here in New York City. And as a result of all these people coming to the circus, he becomes famous, he becomes wealthy, he travels the country, he travels the world, and now he becomes a somebody. He becomes the greatest showman. But as a result of that, he loses himself. Originally, he wanted to make people happy, now he's just using people. He wanted to help people, but he, now he's just using people for his own purposes and his own glory. He wanted to be a father that was present, now he is a father that is absent. Now, if you were to ask P.T. Barnum those two questions, who are you trying to impress? What are you trying to prove? His answer would be, who am I trying to impress? My father-in-law, who thinks that I'm nothing but a bum and a failure that can't provide for my family. Who am I trying to impress? My wife, who grew up wealthy and privileged. Who am I trying to impress? My kids. Who am I trying to impress? Society. What am I trying to prove? That I'm a somebody and not a nobody. That my life is not a waste. That I, can, that I can make a difference in this world, that I am successful and not a failure. And so there was this drive, this tainted drive to become great. You know what P.T. Barnum needed to hear? You know what every one of us need to hear? The words of the great missionary, William Carey. William Carey once said, I am not afraid of failing but I am afraid of succeeding at things that don't really matter. I am not afraid of failing, but I am afraid of killing it and succeeding at things that don't really matter. The prophet Jeremiah once said, Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. Because oftentimes our desires to want to be great are tainted. Let me read you a quote on the first page of your bulletin by Jeff Cook. And in his book seven, Cook says, the more I make my life, my well-being, my enlightenment, and my success primary, the farther I step from reality. Thus the hell-bound do not travel downward, they travel inward, cocooning themselves behind a mass of vanity personal rights, religiosity, and defensiveness. Obsession with self is the defining mark of a disintegrating soul. So here's the question then. How do we pursue greatness the right way? And here, while the disciples are arguing, Jesus in silence takes a little child and he puts, them, he puts that child in front of them and he says, this is actually what it means to be great. Now, if you were there, you would probably be thinking, huh? How does a child symbolize greatness? If anything, in our society, we, we look at kids as cute, but we sort of uh, know that they're immature and naive and a little bit foolish. And so how does a child 
symbolize greatness, they would have been thinking, what do you mean by this? And the reason for that is because the way that Jesus thinks and his principles, his ethics, are counterintuitive. They're countercultural, they're upside down, which is why he was the original Malcolm Gladwell before Malcolm Gladwell. And so he takes this child and he says, this is what it means to be great. And so in what ways then does a child symbolize greatness? Well, think about it this way. One of the misconceptions about children is this. Children learn languages faster than adults do, which is true. But one of the misperceptions about this is that somehow they're able to soak in more words than adults are. And so what we're sort of saying is that children are smarter than adults are, and clearly that is not the case. Adults are far more smarter and intelligent than children are. So how is it then, if we're smarter than they are, how is it that they learn languages faster than we do? The reason why kids learn languages faster than we do as adults is because they are more willing to make mistakes. They are more willing to humble themselves. They're more willing to embarrass themselves. And as a result of all the mistakes that they make by exper experimenting with words, they learn from their mistakes. And as a result of that, they're able to learn languages faster than adults are. We are far more proud. And so we're a lot more cautious and we're a lot more guarded, and we don't want to make the type of mistakes that children do. We don't want to make any errors. We want to be perfect. And as a result of that, we don't make the same type of mistakes, and therefore we don't learn from the mistakes that children do. In other words, children teach us what it means to truly, truly be humble and to lower uh, our guards. And the way that children best display their humility, again, is upon how dependent they are for other people for help. When children need help, they'll cry out for consolation. Now, as adults, whenever we're afraid, whenever we're scared, whenever we need help, we feel the same need for consolation as well, but what do we do? We don't cry out. We don't ask for help. Why don't we do that? It's pride. Because we like the idea of being able to do things on our own. We like being independent, autonomous, self-sufficient without the help of uh, anybody else. But there is a great danger in being autonomous, self-sufficient, and independent at times. And so let me read us a second quote from John Tyson's book, uh, The Burden is Light, who is a pastor uh, right here in Midtown. And this is what uh, Tyson says. When we become obsessed with managing our existence to the point that we stop trusting God or depending on Him, we enter the dangerous territory of seeking to become God ourselves. Our culture is riddled with control mechanisms that facilitate this idolatry. Some use money as an umbrella of control. Money creates space, comfort, and distance between the challenges and annoyances of life. It creates an illusory blanket of security around our place and position in the world. Others use power to control. They work toward positions of influence and authority so that they create a safe distance between themselves and threats to the ego or emotion. The antidote for a spirit of control is a spirit of surrender. Surrender is that beautiful posture of the heart in which we humbly climb off the throne of our lives and invite the one who rightfully belongs there to take our place. Instead of seeking sovereignty over ourselves, we trust the one who is over all things and rest in his good intention for our lives. Now here's a question. How then do we become more like children 
when we spent our entire lives trying to be more like adults? Well, one of the things that we had to see when Jesus says that we need to become like children or welcome children into our lives is this. He is not saying that we should be childish. He is saying that we should be childlike. Being childish is being immature. Being childlike is depending upon someone else uh, for help. And so in what ways can we become more and more childlike? Well, I think the best way of becoming more and more childlike is to learn from the best example of all, and that is Jesus himself, who actually became a child. The Father in heaven became a child on earth. The greatest became the least. The biggest became the smallest. The most powerful became the most vulnerable. Now, here's the question. Why would he do that? Well, when I talk to my two-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Logan, I can't talk to her about culture or the news. The only way I can really have a conversation with her is if I stoop to her level, enter into her world, and talk about Moana or Elsa. That is the only way we can have a relationship. I have to condescend myself. I have to sometimes go on my hands and knees. It's the only way of being able to relate with her. Similarly, this is the Christmas story. God condescends himself. He stoops down and he enters into our world. J.R. Packer, the preeminent theologian, said, nothing in fiction, nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the doctrine of the incarnation. Now, here's the other question. Why would God condescend himself like this? Well, believe it or not, you actually said it yourself just a few minutes ago in the Nicene Creed. In the second paragraph, it says, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven. That's why he came. In our secular world, we believe that when someone dies, they're automatically teleported to a better place and they're looking down on us. Well, in Christianity, we actually believe that there is a concrete better place, the kingdom of God or heaven but we're not automatically teleported there. In fact, we don't deserve to be there. The only reason why we can be in heaven is because God came down from heaven to come and get us. In the fall of 2010, there were 33 Chilean miners that were buried underneath 2,000 uh, 2, feet of solid rock for two months. They were literally buried alive. Now, they could not save themselves being buried below 2,000 feet underneath the ground. They could only be saved from above. And two months later, drilling began, and help came to pull these men out from the ground. Similarly, in Christianity, we are the Chilean miners. And God has punched a hole through the earth to come and get us out while we were buried and dead in our transgressions and our sins. And the way he pulled us out is by coming into our world, becoming like us, and dying the death that we deserved in our place so that we wouldn't need to. Now, there's only one condition then at this point to receive the benefits of what Jesus has done, dying for our sins and gaining eternal life. And that is the same condition you need to enter into a relationship with the child. And that condition is humility. If you go to any amusement park, and if you go to any ride in the amusement park, there are always height restrictions. 
If you're tall enough, you can ride the ride. If you're too small, you can't. And similarly, when it comes to entering into a relationship with God, there are height restrictions. But these restrictions are upside down. If you're too big, you cannot enter into a relationship with God. But if you're small enough, you can. I want to read you a final quote uh, in your bulletin from Jared Wilson. And this is what Wilson says. The bar is set so low for entrance into God's kingdom that anyone can qualify. But few do because so many refuse to stoop. So how then can we learn how to stoop a little bit better? I would say two things. Uh, One of the things that my daughter Logan now does now that she can speak a little bit, uh, whenever she needs help, she'll tug on my pants and she'll say, come daddy, come. Come daddy, come. Anytime she needs help with the potty or whatever it might be, come daddy, come. Similarly, we have a heavenly father who is more than willing to help us, just like I am more than willing to help my daughter if she would only cry out. But are you too big? Are you too self-sufficient? Do you suffer from the sin of independence and autonomy? If we simply tugged on his pants and said, come, he will come. He is more than willing to come and to help us, which is why I believe, and this is the second thing, that prayer is the ultimate sign of dependence. A lack of prayer is the ultimate sign of independence. So one of the questions that I usually ask, not all the time, when I do counsel people is this, how many minutes per day do you pray? Now, I'm going to ask this as a rhetorical question to each and every one of you, and I want a number in your mind. How many minutes per day do you pray? And should that number be higher? If that number is lower than you want it to be, you suffer from the sin of independence. What you're basically saying is, I really don't need you. But if that number is high enough, basically what you're saying is, God, I need you. I really, really need you. I cannot do this apart from you. The great uh, Chicago preacher D.L. Moody once said that sometimes people think that God is troubled when we come to him over and over again with the same petitions and requests over and over and over again. And Moody said that's not the case. The only thing that God is troubled by is when we do not come to him at all. God is not troubled when we come to him over and over again, when we sound like a broken record. So what can I do? And believe it or not, I, I, I actually think that this is the hardest thing that pastors have to do, persuade themselves that they need to pray more and to persuade their church that they need to pray more as well. How can we pray a little bit more and depend upon God? Well, Kathy Keller, who is one of the co-founders of Redeemer, here in New York City. She's in her late 60s now. Uh, a few years ago, she was diagnosed with Crohn's disease. And so every single day, Kathy needs to take this pill, basically in order to live a healthy life. Without this pill, she really could not live a healthy life. And so she thought to herself, and she told her husband, Tim, what if we viewed prayer like this pill? That, that prayer is so important that without doing it, We cannot live a healthy life. We cannot live. 
And if we don't take this pill, we will die. What if we view prayer as that important? Because that is precisely what it is. If we viewed prayer and us depending upon God as the key to our flourishing in the midst of the chaos that we are around, how much different our lives would be. But are you too self-sufficient? Are you too proud? Are you too independent? I'll close with this quote from C.S. Lewis, who said, relying on God has to begin all over again every day as if nothing had yet been done. This is what it means to be childlike. This is what it means to be the least, which is actually what it means to be the greatest. But do you want to be great in God's eyes and His ways, or do you want to be great from the world's ways? Let's pray together. Lord, help us to realize that the weaker we feel, the harder we lean. And the harder we lean, the stronger we go spiritually. And so help us to lean on your mighty and strong arms, not just once in a while, but literally every single day. In Jesus' name I pray.